Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Let's open our Bibles together to 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 1 today, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We just began a new series in this book, and we'll be looking today at verses 8 through 14 as we uh, continue our new study. I'd remind you that tonight we have our evening service. It begins at 5 o'clock. This upcoming Wednesday, we have our midweek, and uh, we meet in the chapel. It's at 7 o'clock. We're continuing through our series in the Gospel of John. This upcoming uh, Wednesday, we'll be looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. I encourage you to read uh, that portion of Scripture prior to coming. And we're going to be looking at at a woman who anoints the Lord Jesus Christ with costly ointment. We'll be looking at this uh, this upcoming Wednesday, and I chose to entitle that particular installment in our study, Worship or Waste, because you're going to be seeing that in the mind of at least one person, it was a waste. So let's look at that together. That'll be this upcoming Wednesday night. We do have our men's Super Bowl breakfast that's coming up, fellas. Love to have you with us. It's going to be a great breakfast. We have our uh, Monday night, we just began it, so I want to present this and remind you. We have our young adults uh, study that just began. It's at 7.30. It's in the uh, banquet hall, and uh, that, again, is on Monday night. And we have our couples retreat coming up for you married couples, and we're announcing it, but I'll give you a little bit more. Um, We have uh, good speakers, some some great speakers. Uh, One of the brothers who will be sharing is Sandy Adams. He's been with us before. I think Sandy's one of the clearest and best teachers that we have in Calvary Chapel. And so Sandy will be with us, and he'll be sharing on Saturday. We have Brennan Beeler, whom I happen to love a lot, and Brennan will be sharing also. And uh, it'll be just a great uh, great time. We're going to be going to the uh, Queen Mary, and no, we're not taking a cruise. That thing is not seaworthy, but we are going to be using their facilities there, and they're very nice. I'd never really been there and I went and uh, looked at it with Marie, and <laughs> excuse me, it's, it's very, very nice. And so I asked, uh, so I could kind of share with you guys a little bit about it, um, you know, what does what it have to offer? So I'll, I'll share, and I'm just going to read my bullet points here. It says, as a hotel guest, all historical exhibits are offered for free, along with tours, a 4D theater, and you can purchase if you want a guided tour. There are three restaurants on board. They have a Starbucks. Our main meeting room is the Queen's Salon. It's a former first-class cinema and main lounge of the Queen Mary during its travel in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Many movies have been filmed there since then. All of the reserved rooms are deluxe state rooms with king beds, operable portholes. There's a free shuttle offered to the city of Long Beach, so you can go to Long Beach, get mugged, and come back in the same day. Which will, <laughs> which will take you to many Long Beach attractions like Shoreline Village, Ports of Call, the Aquarium of the Pacific, and uh, things like that. And let's see, from the Queen Mary website, it says, whether it's the authentic polished wood paneling, the original 1930s artwork, the Art Deco style, or the operable uh, portholes, there's no question that the Queen Mary Hotel is unlike any other Southern California hotel. Each stateroom is unique with its own personality, offers a real glimpse into what transatlantic travel was like during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And so we invite you, uh, married couples. We also have day passes for those who are dating, engaged couples. Uh, You're not going to be spending the night with us, but you can come for the day, and that would be on Saturday. So anyway, I encourage you to go and to be part of that, and uh, I'd love to have you with us. With that said... 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's begin reading together here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 8, and uh, we'll get into our study. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. I'll read to verse 11, 
and we'll get into our study. Paul writes, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired, even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And so let me review some things. Perhaps some of you weren't with us last week, and I'll review a couple of things as I head into the uh, verses before us. I want to remind you that Paul had just told the Corinthians that God is the one who comforts us. He comforts us, Paul says, in all of our tribulation. Now, he had said that in verses 4 and 5. And as he was sharing concerning this God who comforts us, in verse 5, he referred to this uh, tribulation as the sufferings. He called it the sufferings of Christ. Now, when you look at that phrase, the sufferings of Christ, many things can come to mind. What does he mean when he uses that phrase in this context? Well, the first thing we can do is eliminate something. We can eliminate what he is not saying. He is not speaking of suffering for the sake of our faith in Jesus Christ. He's not speaking of persecution or afflictions uh, because we're believers. And when he speaks of the sufferings of Christ, he's also not saying that we're adding to his redemption through any suffering that we as Christians may endure. When he speaks of the sufferings of Christ, he's saying as Christians we have joined him in what is called the fellowship of suffering. You see, troubles are part of the Christian life. And we can, and often we do, suffer. That's simply part of what it means to be a believer. It's something that we've been prepared for. That's something that, that we should not be surprised when it happens. We shouldn't be surprised, in other words, when we go through affliction, when we go through tribulation, when we go through troubles and pain. It shouldn't be a surprise. And yet it seems to me that many believers, when they endure suffering, begin to complain against God because they think it's some strange thing. Why am I going through this? Why, Lord, did you allow this in my life? We need to remember that, that affliction is part of, of just being alive. It, it's something that we will experience no matter what. And therefore, we ought to be prepared for it. In Philippians 1.29, Paul said it like this. He said, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is part of our life. It is part of what we go through. It's part of what we endure as believers. We can suffer. We often do suffer. And so to follow Jesus is to be put in the position of experiencing hardship. In 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He writes, Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because as we looked at this last time, I was sharing with you that, that there, are, uh, there is a purpose, and many purposes really, in the afflictions that we endure, the things that we go through. So again in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he said it like this. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And so we go through things. He was pointing that out. It shouldn't be a surprise. But when we go through the affliction, we're learning things, and he speaks of that in verse 6 when he speaks of consolation and salvation. In other words, as we go through the things that we go through, we are equipped to be a comforter to others who too will go through hard times. And Paul can use himself as, as an example of a patient endurance. And he would be saying to them, hang in, because in doing so, you become settled in your faith. In verse 7, he says, our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. So the depth of consolation we experience balances the depth of suffering that we endure. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
and of children than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And so as we saw last time, patient endurance in our tribulation and affliction uh, has two results. One, it encourages others because they see our response to the things that we go through, and uh, it encourages them to spiritual growth as we are experiencing spiritual growth. And uh, two, as we go through it, it teaches us how to be capable of comforting others who are going through similar situations. So as we look at the passage before us now and continue on in, in, in chapter 1, Paul begins to address some of the gossip that has been spread about him. It's interesting to note that there was a lot of gossip that would be spread about such a great man. And the Corinthians were dealing with infiltrators who were coming in to undermine the ministry of Paul. They were spreading lies about him. They wanted to undermine him because they knew if they could undermine Paul and his credibility, they would also begin to undermine the effectiveness of the gospel that Paul preached. In, in Proverbs 26, 21, the writer said, as charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. And that's what they were doing. They were coming in kindling strife. They knew if they could undermine his credibility, they would discredit his message. And because receiving the message is salvation, Paul had to answer his critics. It's not that Paul wanted to. I think one of the things that you waste your time in very often is you waste your time in attempting to defend yourself. It's normally a waste of time because any time you begin to defend yourself, it just gives people the opportunity to say, well, if he wasn't guilty, he wouldn't defend himself. So very often it's a difficult thing to, to just listen and let it go. And, uh, you know, some people want to defend themselves constantly, but in the case of Paul, he has to. He has to say something because it's undermining his ministry. These gossips have come in. These slanderers have come in, and they're, they're calling, uh, calling uh, on the Corinthians to, to reject Paul's ministry. And Paul is the apostle who planted the church. He said, though you may have 10,000 instructors, yet you have but one father. I begot you in the gospel. He had a, a spiritual father's heart for this church. He loved the Corinthians. And here come these people infiltrating, entering in, trying to undermine the work, and they were becoming successful to the degree that Paul has to write and speak to them. And that's what he's doing. He's now beginning to defend himself. And so how does he begin? Well, in verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be ignorant without knowledge. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that, that, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. We don't want you to be without knowledge of this. You know, the word ignorant today can be used in, in such a disparaging way. We'll, we'll look at you. What are you, man? You're ignorant. You know, and, and people get all uptight about that. The word ignorant just literally means without instruction or without knowledge. That's what it means. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to be without information about this. I don't want you to be without knowledge about this. I want to explain to you concerning what has taken place. And I want you to know uh, something that is important to you. So we don't want you to be ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Now, it's interesting because this trouble that he mentions is unnamed. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say, this is what we endured. He simply speaks concerning the fact that they had trouble when they were ministering in a region called Asia. Some think that this trouble he's referring to is when he had a real hard and difficult time in the city of Ephesus, that's recorded in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. There was an uproar uh, that occurred over Paul's ministry impact on idolatry, especially the worship of uh, a goddess named Diana. And it was a tremendous trouble that occurred. And, and in verse 8, he said, this trouble is taking its toll. He said, we were burdened beyond measure above strength. When he says we were burdened through this thing that took place, we were burdened. Notice how he speaks of it. We were burdened without measure, without strength. He, he went through some terrible times beyond measure, above strength. Uh, I experienced incredible stress. Uh, I, I experienced things that were above my human ability to deal with. It even speaks about despairing. 
When he says we despaired there, even of life, the word despair speaks of, of, of total unavailability of an exit from oppression. We had no way out. We were locked into a cage. We were, we were put in a position that we couldn't get out of this. We despaired. There's no escape. Now, the Corinthians were unaware of this stress, so Paul informs them of it. They, they know, as people know in general, that, that their spiritual leaders go through difficulties. People in general know that. They go through difficulties, but they didn't understand, in the case of Paul, the personal cost. He says, you're aware of my affliction, but you're ignorant of the personal cost. You don't know what I have paid personally. Now, that, of course, is normal. How could somebody know all the detail, details of somebody else's life? How could they know the things that they're going through and what they're feeling? Sometimes spiritual immaturity or even simple uh, uh, unawareness uh, can blind people to the cost that is paid by other people. But Paul is saying, in, in the face of this, I've remained faithful to Jesus, and I've remained faithful in my love to you. And as he's speaking about this, this burden, the trouble that he came to through in Asia, he, he says in verse 9, and look at the intensity of it, he says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I remember hearing uh, many years ago at a, at a conference, one of the pastors uh, was teaching on this passage, and, and in verse 9 he said, when Paul said we had the sentence of death in ourselves, uh, that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, he said it sounds to me as if Paul was in such desperate uh, state that he was um, contemplating uh, taking his own life. And so I say that to you now, not to say that that was true, because that was wrong. I say that to you in case that you've ever heard that. That's not what Paul is speaking about. Paul, of all people, would not contemplate suicide. So that was not something that he was speaking about. When he's speaking of this, this sentence of death in ourselves, he was not thinking that he was going to kill himself. I want you to note verse 9 where it says we had the sentence. That word sentence is, a, is defined as an official verdict with no hope of reprieve. It's a sentence. There's no hope of reprieve. In other, in other words, we came to a place of no human hope. We were without strength to save ourselves. Now, that's a very human thing for the Apostle Paul to say. It was at this point, he's saying, that God stepped in. It's when I came to the end of myself that I discovered where God really begins. It's when I was weakest that he showed me how strong he is. That's the point he's making. I couldn't save myself. I despaired. And yet God stepped in. You can know that yourself too, by the way. When you come to the end, when you think there's no hope, that's when God begins to move. When you can no longer do it yourself and you fall on your face and you say, God, and, and I'm assuming that every person here who loves the Lord has gone to that point at least once. If you haven't, you will. If you love the Lord, you're going to. If you've got a hunger for God, you're going to. You're going to get to the end of yourself and you're going to say, I, I can't do this. I'm under such pressure. I don't know what to do. Lord, in Jesus' name, show me the way or else I perish. I don't know what to do. And that's what Paul was basically saying. I came to the end of myself. And, and he knew God. He knew God in a wonderful way, a deep way. He traveled everywhere to talk about God. But that doesn't mean he's learned everything about him. You always, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 30, 40, you always have something new to learn about the Lord because there's so much to know of him. And you learn so many things up to a certain point, and you say, oh, I've got a lockdown, and the Lord says, no, we're going second level now. Now we're going third level, because that's what he does. You get to this point where you think you know, and then he reveals that you don't know me. You only know some of me. You only know part of what I can show you. You haven't come to the end yet. You don't understand what I can do. And that's what Paul is saying. I despaired of human strength. I despaired of life. I, I got to the point where we're enduring such affliction and such difficulty. I didn't know what to do. I despaired. He said, but 
He said, we, we, we learned something. We should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If God is able to raise the dead, can't he bring life to your situation? Yes, he can. We have to understand that. If God really raises the dead, every Easter we celebrate the fact that he does, and then we live as if he doesn't. Isn't that true? We celebrate that we have a living Savior that died on a cross for us. We celebrate that, that he was buried, and, and all hope in his apostles had, had died with Jesus. That's why they're so surprised when he was resurrected. That's why when Mary came and shared with the men that Jesus is alive and has appeared to us, they thought that she was crazy because dead men don't rise. They stay in the grave. If they do rise, they scare you. <laughs> you would go crazy. You'd be so scared if that guy popped out of that coffin and said, hey, what's happening? <laughs> Dead men don't rise. But Jesus did. And that's why we believe him. See, that's Christianity. That's why we believe him. And so he said, listen, because we are not to trust in ourselves. We are to trust in God who raises the dead. We despaired even of life. We thought we were walking dead men. But God taught us to trust the one who gives life to the dead. And that's what he's saying here. We came to a place where there was no human hope. We came to a place where we were without strength to save ourselves. But God stepped in in Psalm 116, 8 and 9. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He says in verse 9 that we should not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Again, he raises the dead, therefore he's able to rescue me from the grip of death. Now what is it that the Lord is teaching him? What does God want to remind of him of? He's saying, do not trust in your own abilities to deliver yourself, but trust in mine. And that's the heart of the Christian faith, trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts and leaning not unto our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledging him that he might be able to direct our paths. Trust in the Lord. In John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me... You can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do all things. Because your trust is in God who raises the dead. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, who delivered us, who does deliver us, and will deliver us. Past, present, future. God has been faithful. God is now faithful. And God will continue to be faithful in the future. He covers everything. You look at the past, and God was there. You look at your present, and God is there. And you look to your future, and God is there. He encompasses you. He has delivered you. He's delivering you now. He will deliver you in the future. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't forsake you. You walk through that valley, but he's with you. He never leaves you. He will never leave you. I will never, never, never leave you, nor forsake you is the promise of God. He's with you. And Paul says that I've discovered this because I look at how it was in the past, how there were things that I found myself in, situations that I discovered that were just too great for me. And then I think of how God stepped in. Even now, I think of the things I go through. And yet, I see that God is with me. He hasn't left me. And this strengthens me because if he was with me in the past, if he's with me in the present, I know he'll be with me in the future. I will be walking with him, directing, uh, being uh, directly with him as he works with me. And so he delivers us. He has, he, he is, and he will. And there's nothing he can't do because he raises the dead. He is faithful. He continues to be faithful. Remember that. 
In Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. In 2 Peter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. But the Lord knows how to rescue godly men and godly women from their trials. He knows how, and he does. And so he doesn't forsake us. He doesn't leave us. And Paul says, you can know it. God has got you. He's holding fast to you. He has in the past delivered you. Think about what God has done in your past. How there were things in your life that you thought were overcoming you. And now you look back and you say, but you know God was there. And then even think now you may have present concerns and circumstances. All you need to do is remember God was there. And God will be here. And then, you know, what happens years from now? He's still there. He doesn't go anywhere. He's still there. I've shared this with you before. I'll say it quickly. Somebody asked me, what is the, uh, the, the greatest lesson you've learned as, as a believer walking with the Lord as many years as you have? What is the number one lesson you have learned? And it's always the same thing. I said, you know what I've learned? I've learned that it all works out. I've learned that you give God, you give God space and time, and it all works out. And the things I was so greatly concerned about are things he already planned to deliver me from if I had just waited on the Lord and been patient. And here I am worrying about tomorrow when I have no control over it at all. So what have I learned? What am I learning? What do I continue to learn? To cast my cares on him because he cares for me. To know that his plans for me are greater than any plan I ever made for myself. And to know that the things he wants to do are the things that will be done. And the best and wisest thing I can do is be on the same page with him. He is the one who's, who's delivered. He's the one who is delivering. And he is the one who will deliver in the future. And that's what Paul is reminding us. Uh, because he's the God who raises the dead. And he goes on into verse 11. And he says, you also helping together in prayer for us. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. For the gift granted to us through many. You helping together in prayer. So he trusts that God will continue delivering because of their continuing prayer. Now what he's endured may turn to blessings because of their prayer for him. And he's encouraged and he's comforted by their prayers. And he's actually saying, I am so appreciative of your prayers. Would you continue please? To pray. You see, Paul, as mentioned a moment ago, knew that God would continue to deliver him. In 2 Timothy 4.18, it says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. But though that was true, he, he knew that spiritual work was accomplished by prayer for all spiritual work is done through spiritual means. And so he knew that the work he wanted to accomplish had to be covered by prayer. And that's why in Ephesians, he said something similar. In Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, he, he said to the church of Ephesus, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You know, sometimes we don't appreciate the power of, of prayer. It's, it's not so much the power of prayer, it's the power of the God who answers prayer. And sometimes we fail to think that he's actually listening when in fact he is. And we, we, we sometimes can cry out to him and say, God, it seems as if the heavens are brass and your ear is, is not listening to me. But sometimes the Lord is, is just saying to us, you need to wait for a while. I've got some things I'm working out. Just wait. It's all going to work out for good. Just wait and keep asking and keep seeking, keep knocking, and, and I will show up, and I always show up exactly on time. And so he's bringing that up, and, and he says in verse 11 that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift that has been granted to us. So he's requesting continual prayer, but he's also reinforcing their relationship. In, in telling them that he has suffered much, he's provoking their affection for him. He's not asking them to pity him. He's simply reminding them of his selflessness. He's saying, don't listen to the gossip of the false teachers who are attacking me. 
He speaks of the gift that was granted. Well, the gift that's granted was his deliverance from danger and the suffering that he spoke of. Because these people have intruded and they're beginning to undermine him, he needs to remind them of the relationship they have between him and them. But he also now begins to answer the, uh, the accusations that have been lodged against him by intruders. Listen, and I'll say this quickly but move in, and move into the verses before us, uh, but to lay a foundation briefly. Whenever God moves, the enemy tries to move to, to, to counter his work. When God is doing the work, the enemy tries to infiltrate. He, he wants to undermine it. Sometimes what he'll do is he will attack from the outside. There will be things that people are saying on the outside about the work God is doing. But often what he does is he joins. If he can't defeat it from the outside, what he does is he undermines it on the inside. And he'll infiltrate. He has, um, he has agents, if you will, that will enter into a work that God is doing, and they undermine it. And you say, oh, come on, that sounds like, like a, a, just a silly story. How do you know that? Well, because that's what's happened here in Corinth. These infiltrators have entered into the church at Corinth, and in order to undermine Paul's apostolic authority and ministry to destroy the gospel and to draw attention to themselves in order that they might profit from, from those people in a very selfish way, uh, they began to attack Paul. I mentioned when we began our study that I have counted around 24 accusations that are lodged against Paul in the 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians. At least 24. And, and as, as, as we are about to encounter two of them, I'll show you how you see that he's answering an accusation because the way he writes gives us insight into the fact that he's actually responding to something that's taking place simply in the way that he's writing. And you'll see this in just a moment. Because what they're doing is they're attempting to undermine him and they're trying to replace him as the spiritual leaders of the Corinthian church. Again, that's a common tactic. You don't oppose the teaching per se, you oppose the teacher. And we're going to see a variety of criticisms of the apostle throughout this letter. Now, one example, and we'll be getting to that eventually, one example will be found in chapter 10. So let me show you something very quickly. One example will be found in chapter 10 when they speak about him, and they're not speaking of his teaching. They're speaking of the fact that he's unattractive and boring. That's what they're saying. So in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, this is what they said. He's quoting them. He said, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That's an accusation against him as a human being. They said, oh, he writes powerful letters. He's, a, he's a, a paper tiger, they used to call that. He's really fierce on paper. But when you see him, he's just a little weakling. And what they're saying is that he is not big, he's not strong, he doesn't command himself well, and when he speaks, he's a boring person. Why is that? Well, the Corinthians being Greeks would admire the orators that were trained professional speech givers. And so he hadn't the quality, uh, one, of looks, and he didn't have the quality of being able to command and to speak in the way that their famous orators could. And so what they did is they would point to him as a man, and they said he's a little wimpy guy with a, a weird squirrely voice. That's basically what they're saying. And they're attacking him, not on the basis of his teaching and authority. They're attacking him on the basis of outer appearance and gifting skills. And that's what they'll do. A lot of people don't want someone who will speak to them truth. So they find things about them they don't like, and they pick on those things to point to him how, but yeah, what he's saying sounds okay, but man, I can't listen to him. You know, that squeaky voice of his, that weirdness of his. I can't listen to that. Anyway, when I look at him, I just want to barf because he's so ugly. I mean, that's what they'll do. It's true. And so that's a very ancient tactic. If you can't attack his authority and accomplishment, attack him as a person. And we're going to look at two of the charges that they brought against him. They said he was selfish and carnal, that he's a fleshly man. 
And secondly, that he exaggerates his accomplishments with stories and doesn't give truth in a plain fashion. We'll see that right now. So this brings us to the place of addressing the first charge lodged against him. Verse 12, our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. So you can see when he says godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, that he is responding to the fact that they're saying he speaks with fleshly wisdom. That was the accusation, and that's what is prompting him to write our boasting is the testimony of our conscience. We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Why? Because they're saying that he conducted himself with fleshly wisdom. And that's his first charge. The opponents are saying he's selfish, he's a hypocrite, and he uses fleshly wisdom. These charges are intended to steal the hearts of the people. Now, these people who infiltrated the church at Corinth didn't love them. You need to understand that too. False teachers do not love you. You might want to mark that in your heart. False teachers do not love you. If they did, they'd tell you the truth. False teachers don't love you. They will use you. They will undermine and they will use you. That's what false teachers do. That's what Paul is dealing with. They're trying to steal the hearts of the people so they can steal their finances. They didn't love the Corinthians. They wanted to take advantage of them. Later on, again, in this letter, he makes it clear. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20, he says this. Listen, he says, you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. He said, you put up with those things. These are the things that are taking place in the lives of these Corinthians, and you, you put up with this. And so these were people who were being abused, and, and he now addresses what they've been saying about him. He says in verse 12, our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience. When he says our boasting, the word boasting means our proud confidence, our reason to boast, our, our exaltation. We exalt ourselves in this. Paul examined his own motives, and Paul trusted that his motives were pure. It's like what it says in Job 23, 11, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. So Paul examined his own motives. He trusted that his heart was pure, and he was being judged. But even though he's being judged, and it's a continuation of what had taken place in, in the first epistle, he still has a clean conscience. In the first epistle, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians, he said it like this. He said, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. Yet, I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. So he says, our boasting is the testimony of our conscience. Now, when you read the word conscience... You know, a conscience is that which distinguishes between what is morally good and morally bad. You cannot be saved by a conscience because your conscience only acts on the information it has received. And so in your society, it may not be wrong for you to have 15 different women you sleep with, and it's okay in your society, and your conscience doesn't bother you. That's because your society has declared these things are acceptable. So a conscience cannot save you. A conscience only informs you. And so he's saying, in, even though his conscience is informed by Scripture, he's saying that I have this clean conscience because I'm doing the right thing before the Lord according to his word. And so I have a clean conscience. It's interesting that we can boast about many things. There are people who boast about all kinds of things, how fast they can run, how, how, how strong they are or whatever, how smart they may be. His boasting isn't in those things. His boasting is, is, is in his conscience. He says, I boast of my conscience. You see, keeping his conscience clean was of utmost importance. In Acts 24, 16, he said, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. 
Now, part of the reason for keeping a clean conscience is it, make, it makes confident teaching possible. You see, hypocrisy undermines the power of the preacher, and it undermines the power of the message itself. If someone's preaching a message that they don't live up to in a hypocritical fashion, then obviously it undermines their credibility as well as the message of salvation. I knew of a guy who used to pastor a church. He's no longer doing it. hasn't for many years. But I remember hearing that this is a man who was, he was getting loaded before he preached. He was getting high. And um, not as he preached, but before he preached. And he said, well, I can enter into the pulpit because I've been asking God to forgive me. So there's a humility in my heart when I'm preaching. No, no, that's not how you do it. That's not what you do. You know, sin, 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 so you can feel grace, 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 and go and preach grace? No, that's not what you do. What you do is you exercise yourself to have a clean conscience. You live the things that you're giving to the best of your ability. And that's one of the reasons why Paul made it clear, by the way, that teachers were to have good character. They're to be without reproach. They're, they're to have a good reputation amongst uh, those who are not believers. It's like what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 7, when he said uh, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Uh, a minister who doesn't preach, uh, doesn't live what he preaches, undermines the power of the gospel. And Paul said, you don't put somebody in a ministry who does that. Paul had a clean conscience. And notice how he says why he does. He says in verse 12, he lived in simplicity and godly sincerity. The word simplicity speaks of without self selfishness or pretense or hypocrisy. He lived in simplicity without hypocrisy. Psalm 51, verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. He, he lived without selfishness, without pretense, without hypocrisy, and he lived with godly sincerity. His godly sincerity is what you would call a perfect openness. He was a book you could read by just knowing him. He had purity of motive and a purity of heart. And he didn't operate, according to verse 12, with fleshly wisdom. What is fleshly wisdom? Well, it's carnal thinking. It's a way of thinking that's not concerned with bringing glory to God. Fleshly wisdom is grounded in the flesh. It's looking for profit and pleasure. It's looking for honor. It's based on devising plans to promote yourself or your cause but not the cause of Jesus. So his, de his detractors are saying he relies on fleshly wisdom, but he's saying, I don't. His response is, I have a clean conscience. And my clean conscience, you can see, it's revealed in simplicity and godly sincerity. So this is something that they could judge by in the manner that he lived before them. He lived out the message that he gave to them, and they could see that very clearly. Paul's life was open. Paul loved them. And that's why he takes time to answer the charges. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he'll say, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. His point, my words and my works line up. I rely on the Lord completely. And so he's saying, if you want to know who I am in my ministry, think of what God has delivered me from. Think of how I've been up to this point. Think of how I've been since you met me. You don't know that I've gone through some great struggles. Let me remind you of what happened, how that I despaired even of life. But this is also how I, 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 I was deepened in my understanding that God will deliver me because I know he in the past has, he has now, and he will in the future. But these people are infiltrating. They're coming in and saying that I use fleshly wisdom, that I'm devising schemes to try and take you captive to me. And that is not taking place at all because you know it, because I love you and because I'm an open book before you. And what you see is what you get. I'm not going to put on that I'm one way here and, and I'm different somewhere else. My son Joseph many years ago was going to Bible college at Marietta Bible College. And uh, he made friends with a young man on the, at the school. And uh, as they got to know each other better, the young man said something to Joseph that Joseph shared with me later on. The young man said to him, I feel sorry for you, Joseph. And Joseph said, why? 
He says, because you see your father for what he really is. And Joseph says, what do you mean? He says, you know how the preachers go up and say one thing, and when they're at home, they do something else. And so Joseph said to him, my father's not that way. He said, my father, when he's in the pulpit, is the same man he is when he's in his home. My dad doesn't change. See, that's what Paul's talking about. You know, at home, I share with my kids devotions, and I take an offering from them. It's great. <laughs> They're very cheap. I give an altar call every week, and sometimes they get saved even. I, a long time ago, you learned this, and I learned this too. Be what you say you are. If there's anything that smells in the nostrils of anybody, it's hypocrisy. Be who you are. I'm kind of open with you guys. I think you know that. Why is that? I don't want you to think I'm something I'm not. This is who I am. You can like it. You can not like it. It's up to you. But it's who I am. And that's kind of what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know me. You know my sincerity. You know how I lived amongst you. You don't know all the things I've gone through, but the things I've gone through have made me the man that you've grown to love. These people who are entering in don't love you. I love you. I tell you the truth. They want to use you. They'll even profit off of you. They'll abuse you. You take their insults. You put up with it gladly. What, did I sin against you by not being that way? Or hasn't my love for you and the Lord Jesus Christ been so clear that you can see that I'm a sincere individual? And that's basically what he's saying. So he's saying, you know, that, that they say he uses fleshly wisdom, and he says that is not true. And then the second charge here in verse 13 for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. I trust you will understand even to the end. As also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you, are, you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is the second charge that the, the false teachers are saying. They're saying he makes up stories and he, and he doesn't speak plain truth. He says in verse 13... We are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. One of my commentators, a man by the name of Alicot, said, I have, this is what he was saying, paraphrased, I have no hidden meaning in what I write and you read. What you read, you read correctly in its plain and simple sense. There are no innuendos. My speech is straight. There are no hidden meanings. I'm not trying to impress you with fantastic stories. I'm not teaching my personal opinions in order to make me look like an expert and important. I'm not writing with worldly cunning. I'm not evasive in how I minister to you. You can trust what I have told you because I have no hidden motives. I'm not fabricating exciting stories to win your admiration. I want to tell you about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, he said to them, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so he's saying, I'm not trying to be your superstar. I'm not trying to give you these, these uh, incredible stories. Read the book of Acts and see those stories. See what he went through. The man was amazing. But you don't see him telling them these things to make them admire him. There are some, unfortunately, who fall into the trap of wanting to be the hero of the church. All their stories are about themselves. All their successes are intended to make people look at them as if, boy, there's something I'll never be. That's not the way a preacher ought to be. He ought to say, I'm following Christ. Follow me as I follow him, and let's get together and go to heaven together. Let's be those whom Jesus Christ can show himself strong in. You don't need a hero. You got one. Follow Jesus Christ. That's what the preacher is supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to be the hero of our own stories. We're not supposed to be that person who gives you things you'll never find any other place. We're supposed to teach you about Christ so that you'll love him. That's the key. And today in a, a society with so few heroes, sometimes the preacher is made the hero. There's only one hero, and that's Jesus. He's the only one that we ought to follow. Bottom line. <coughs> I'm telling you the truth, he said. 
I, 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 tr I trust you'll know my teachings about Jesus can be trusted to the very end. And Nanny says in verse 14, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. What I'm telling you is something that you have partial knowledge of. My hope is that in telling you these things, you're going to gain more understanding. You see, we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, on that day, you will recognize that you, you have as much reason to be proud of me as I have to be proud of you. You see, one day, when we stand before Jesus, we'll be proud of each other. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. What is our hope and our glory? It's all the souls that came to faith in Christ. One of the things, and I'll close with this, one of the things that will help you know because I know that some people go to one church and go to another and try and find a place that fits for them. I understand that. But here's something for you to help yourself as you determine where you should be. When you walk out of church and you go down the street and you're walking or visiting with somebody, after church, do you love Jesus more? Have you learned something about him that will help you to love him more? to walk closer with him, to know more of him, to want to serve him more, because that's how I selected who my pastor was, Chuck Smith. Because when I heard Chuck speak, I said, I want to know the God he knows. I, I didn't want to know the things he knew about life in general or personal opinions about whatever. I mean, I could talk to you for a long time about why I think Houston cheats. And I knew McGregor was going to knock out Cowboy. <laughs> Could have told you that too. But you're not interested in that. You don't come here on a Sunday to hear about those little things, the origin of Motown. I've got all kinds of stuff I could talk to you about that I'm interested in. But there's only one thing that matters when you're here. Did you see Jesus? Did you want to walk out and say, I want to follow him? He is worthy of my worship. That's what the pastor is supposed to bring to your heart. And that's what Paul brought to the Philippians. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.